Father, we come before you just grateful to celebrate your Son, who will come in glory. And Father, as we gain a vision for the future and imagine what it'll be like on that great day, we pray that it'll come soon. Pray that this sermon will prepare our hearts to anticipate that great day, that we might be encouraged by a high view of your Son. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in 1989, the long-awaited sequel to Back to the Future came out. And while I'm not recommending the movie, and I've seen it through VidAngel, just so you know, not some sort of pagan here, uh, it was not nearly as good as the original, but it had a very interesting concept. In the original, Marty McFly goes back in time to 1955, and, and in this sequel, he actually goes forward in time to deal with some trouble in the future. And while he is there, an aged Biff Tannen, that is the nemesis to Marty McFly, goes back to 1955, and he takes with him Gray Sports Almanac 1955 to 2000, okay? And he tells the younger version of himself, so the old Biff Tannen goes back in time, finds the younger version of himself, and tells him, you see this book? This book tells the future, tells the results of every major sports event till the end of the century. And with the almanac in hand, young Biff bets big and wins every single time and becomes extraordinarily wealthy, powerful, and corrupt. If you want to know what happens, watch the movie on VidAngel. But have you ever thought about that? Like, what would you do if you got a, an almanac that told you all of the sports outcomes for the next 30 years? that told you what the stock market would do in the next 30 years, property values in the next 30 years. If you, if you knew the future like that, you could bet big and win every time. Right? There has long been a desire to want to know the future so that we can leverage our knowledge of the future to live the fullest in the present. Now, we are about to see a vision of the future, and it's not in the form of an almanac. It's not statistics and wins and losses or stock performance. It's found in a person. Now, in Luke chapter 9, it, it, we're building up to the, this whole concept of, of who is Jesus. Remember when Herod Antipas is in the palace, and he hears all of these stories about Jesus, and he's trying to figure out, you know, who is this person who's doing all these miracles? Jesus asked his disciples, who did the crowd say that I am? And then he asked the, the disciples the all-important question, who do you say that I am? And the answer is the Christ of God. But then he nuances their understanding a little bit and makes it very clear. I'm not some sort of conquering king, at least not right now. I am about to go to Jerusalem to, to suffer and to be crucified and to die and to be buried. And then on the third day, I will be raised. And after making this qualification, making it clear that I am not the Messiah you're expecting, at least not yet, he calls on his disciples to bet big on him, to make a comprehensive commitment. Luke 9.23, and he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? And so he's telling his disciples, every element of your life is to be dedicated to me. Your wealth, your time, your vocation, everything about you is to be crucified. You are to die to yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. I mean, that is a big ask, isn't it? And you've got to keep in mind that, that these disciples haven't seen the resurrection yet. You know, they're having their, their worldview about the Messiah shaken because he's telling them, I'm about to die. He is securing this commitment from them. And then he tells them the bad news about what's about to happen. And then he goes back and he asks for even greater commitment. But then he says this. He, he mentions the payoff. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He's saying there will be a future time when you will see a glorious Son of Man who's coming. But I tell you truly, verse 27, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. There's going to be a sneak preview where they're going to see the king of the kingdom of God. They're going to see a, a future Jesus. Now, when you think about this concept of seeing Jesus, I mean, what, what comes to your mind? Maybe Renaissance art, or you see baby Jesus, or crucified Jesus, or, or Jesus at the Last Supper, painted European Jesus. If you grew up in a Catholic background, you might think of Jesus being the, the wooden carving, the figure on the cross. If you've watched The Chosen, you might think of Jonathan Rumi, the actor who plays him. Right? There, there's always this, this vision of Jesus where we think this is what he must look like. When I meet Jesus, he's going to have long hair and a, and a beard and flowing locks and a warm smile and open arms to give me a hug. But in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 9, verse 28, we get a glimpse of future Jesus, a sneak preview. Follow along with me as I read. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and went up on the mountain to to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And and, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to accomplish At Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. 
So after Jesus calls on them to bet big, right? He shows them the future. He shows them a vision of future Jesus. I mean, we often think about what, how great it would be to have that sports almanac, right? So we can always bet on the future. Well, this is something better. Now, when we look at the future, we, know we have some prophecies, like in the future, things are going to go from bad to worse, right? We know that we face stiff cultural headwinds, that Christians will be marginalized, We know that this world will be against us because if they hated Jesus, right, they will hate his people. The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. There's also just the the toil of what it means to follow Jesus, right? It is picking up your cross daily and following him. It means you deny your use of time. You deny the free exercise of all of your wealth. It means you give yourself sacrificially to the work of the ministry, it means that you seek to be faithful to him when, when the curse is upon us. It might be cancer or chronic sickness or, or just, just pain. And, and sometimes any honest Christian will ask, is it really worth it? Right? There is a, a temptation to um, you know, join the people over there who seem to be having a lot more fun than we are. But understanding the reality of our future and future Jesus enables us to make that daily commitment to always bet big on Jesus, right? And so before the disciples are sent off into their ministry, they get a vision of Jesus. They see future Jesus, what Jesus will look like when we see him for the first time in glory. That will motivate and encourage all of us, all of his disciples, to continually bet big. So how do you keep it up? How do you bet big on Jesus? Well, you look to future Jesus. You recall the prophetic witness to Jesus, and you embrace God's assessment of Jesus. You essentially seek to have a high view of Jesus. You, you look to the glorious Christ. Now, I use that word look on purpose, because what's interesting is this transfiguration is about what is seen, right? It's, it's almost like a portrait. A couple of weeks ago, Becky and I went to Kansas City for a little R&R, and, and we decided to go to the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. Now, I know what you're thinking. You know, David didn't know you're an art lover. Hey, I, I know artists. Da Vinci, Leonardo da Vinci, Raphael, Donatello, Michelangelo. The fact that those are the names of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is purely coincidental. (laughs) But this is what I told Becky. I said, okay, I'll go, but you've got to explain it to me. You need to help me understand what makes this painting a masterpiece. And so we went to the museum, and, and the crown jewel of the Kansas City Museum of Art, or I guess the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, is Caravaggio's John the Baptist in the Wilderness. It is truly a a stunning painting. So we stood in front of it, and and Becky told me, okay, look at where the shadows are directing your vision. Look at the expression of his face. Look at his eyes. And then she started pointing out some of the different ornaments that were around him. And at the end of it, you see that this painting tells a story. Now, when we look at this portrait of the transfigured Jesus... You see a mountain, 
Moses, a cloud, glory, tabernacles, a voice coming out of the cloud. And what event comes to your mind? The exodus. In fact, in verse 31, we see Jesus, Moses, and Elisha conversing about his departure. And that word in the Greek is exodon or exodus. Right? There are some Easter eggs here. So that as we kind of look through the transfiguration, you see that there is this theme of the exodus that's really running through it. Okay? So with that in mind, we look at how do you continually bet big on Jesus? Well, you look to future Jesus. Look at verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Often, when you see Jesus praying in the Gospel of Luke, something big is about to happen. Right? These great events are preceded by prayer. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. In Matthew's account, it says his face shone like the sun. Glorious light was emanating from him. Now, this term glory, I think it's one of those words that we kind of throw around all the time as Christians, right? Glory be, right? The glory of God. Give glory to God. But sometimes it's hard to really distill what exactly is meant by glory. Well, in the Old Testament, glory refers to weight and, and honor. It's basically what makes somebody prominent. An example of this is found in Genesis 45.13, where Joseph, who is second in command in Egypt, tells his brothers in verse 13, You must tell my father of all my honor or glory in Egypt, and you must tell about all that you've seen. Well, what's his glory? Well, it's his position, his, his wealth, his, his stature. When you think about the glory of the king, is what is it that makes this king so worthy? What demonstrates his worthiness? Anaim Judson, first American missionary to, well, basic first American missionary, lived in Burma. And after a life of suffering, he was brought into the royal court because they were at war with England and they needed someone to help negotiate a peace treaty. And so he had access to the king and royalty for the first time. And, and he writes the following account about the glory of the king. I'll read it at length. I dare not attempt a description of that splendid day when majesty, with all its attendant glory, entered the gates of the golden city and amid the acclamations of millions, I may say, took possession of the palace. The leaders of the provinces bordering on China, all the viceroys and high officers of the kingdom were assembled on the occasion dressed in their robes of state and ornamented with the insignia of their office. The white elephant, richly adorned with gold and jewels, was one of the most beautiful objects in the procession. The king and queen alone were unadorned, dressed in the simple garb of the country. They, hand in hand, entered the garden in which we had taken our seats, and where a banquet was prepared for their refreshment. All the riches and glory of the empire were on this day exhibited to view. Here's the king wearing a simple country clothing, 
surrounded by all his glory. Right? When you see glory, you think that person must be important. If a Lamborghini drives through Emporia, we are looking inside to see who's driving it, right? Because that guy must be important because he's surrounded by the glory of the Lamborghini. In this case, what is the glory? It's light. It's light. And there is a connection here between the glory we see in G- of Jesus and the transfiguration and the glory that we're going to see when he comes back. Luke 9.26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Right? He is going to be coming in light. And not normal light. Terrifying light. In Exodus 33.20, Moses wants to see Jesus, or not see Jesus, but see Yahweh, And Yahweh says this, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. To look directly upon Yahweh would kill you. That's why he was always in a tabernacle or a temple or a pillar of of a cloud. Another interesting anecdote is in Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai after conversing with the Lord, With the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So Moses' face is like photoluminescent plastic, right? It's the residual glory. And his face was so bright that everyone was terrified and wanted him to to wear a veil, right? Right? If the residual glory of the God would be that terrifying, how much so, or more so, the actual glory of God? Right? Glorious light. You see, part of betting big on Jesus is kind of tied into your view of Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why I have a hard time with the crucifix. Crucifix is problem number one because it always has Jesus perpetually dying, not risen. But if you always see Jesus as some sort of crucified, suffering weakling, it's very difficult to to see him as a mighty, conquering king. Agreed? Jesus, what does Jesus look like right now? He is in glory. There is nothing, no one can defy him. No one tells him what to do. No one can defeat him. No one can conquer him. He will conquer all things. When you have this glorious view of Jesus, of course you're going to bet big on him because you don't want to be against him. You want to make sure that when he comes back, he says, don't worry, you're with me. There is a high view of Jesus here. That is what they see. And then you see this view of Jesus is interpreted by the prophets, which kind of leads us to having Uh, the necessity of recalling the prophetic assessment of Jesus. Look at verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, Moses and Elijah are overlapping prophets. Both of them did the preponderance of miracles in the Old Testament. And it happened during their eras. Both of them spoke to God on Mount Sinai. 
And both of them have mysterious ends. Elijah was taken up to heaven, and there was speculation that the body of Moses was taken away uh, by the rabbis of that day. But what we also notice is that as they were talking to him, they were talking about his departure, right? And behold, the two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and spoke of his departure, which was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They're having a conversation with Jesus about his departure. Now, I cannot overstate this. The idea that a Messiah would die, that he would be crucified and defeated by the Romans was abhorrent to that theology of, of the Jews at that time. The Messiah was to come and conquer, not be conquered. And yet, here are these great luminaries, literally, speaking with Jesus, and they're all talking about what is about to take place in Jerusalem. That the Messiah would be betrayed, suffer, die, but then rise again, and then return. And this is where we see the link. You see, Moses was the first prophet of Israel. There are other people who spoke for God, but as far as Israel is concerned, Moses was the first prophet. We had the first five books of the Bible because Moses wrote them. He was the one who heard from God through the burning bush, right? And took that vision of God, told the Israelites about it, and through his prophetic ministry, predicted all the plagues, was used to execute them, and he liberated God's people from the promised land. He was in charge of the first exodus. Now, Elijah, he was a prophet who oversaw the apostasy of Israel, but I think one of the reasons why he is mentioned here is because he will be associated with the second exodus. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. All of this points to the fact that before the great day of the Lord, Elijah was going to show up on the scene. He would be the last prophet of Israel. So you got the first prophet and the last prophet. Both of them are communicating with Jesus and making it very clear that everything you're about to see, Peter, James, and John, everything you're about to see is part of the divine plan that has been prophesied from the beginning. Everything. When you see Jesus on the cross, that is according to plan. When you see Jesus taken down to the tomb, that is according to plan. When you see this, the stone rolled over the tomb, knowing that he is gone, that is part of the plan. But what else is part of the plan is his resurrection. And what else is part of the plan is his ascension. And what else is a part of the plan is his return in glory. It's all according to plan. So they have this vision of Jesus. They look to that vision of Jesus. They are to recall the prophetic assessment of what's about to happen. And they're doing it in the context of ministry where it's, it's fascinating. Later on, Peter writes about some of the opposition that he faces. Some of the doubt that is cast upon his message. 
2 Peter 3, 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Right? There is skepticism. A lot of people, the, the Jews didn't believe in the crucified Messiah. And they said, well, where is he? Well, he's in heaven. Okay, when is he going to do all the conquering? Well, when he comes back. Well, why hasn't he done it yet? Right, they are being mocked because it hasn't happened yet. But Peter saw future Jesus. He knows that this will happen. He knows that this is according to plan. And that's why he's able to say with conviction in verse, verse 10 of 2 Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Everything is going according to plan. Right? When we talk about the right side of history, this is a way that the world is going to go. People may think that, but everything is going according to plan. Someday, they will all see future Jesus. It has been foretold. It has been prophesied. You bet big because you know of that reality. You also embrace the Father's assessment of Jesus. Now Peter, this is verse 32, and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So Peter, James, and John are basically about to sleep. Their eyes are getting droopy and heavy, and all of a sudden, I mean, they wake up. And it's interesting that they wake up and see this. It's very clear. This wasn't a dream. This wasn't a dream. This is what they really saw. We know from the other accounts that they were terrified, Because they see Jesus in glory, the glory of the Lord. They see Moses and they see Elijah. And once they calm down and they are given assurances that they will not die on the spot, Peter decides that we need to keep this party going. I tell you what, Elijah, Moses, before you leave, let's go ahead and build some tabernacles here. Let's go ahead and build some tents. And we're going to keep on celebrating. Now, this is an allusion to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is associated with the Exodus, right? They were talking about the Exodus. Well, this is kind of like the after feast. After the the Jews were delivered from Egypt, right? After all the plagues and the striking down of the first sun, the deliverance through the Passover, the deliverance through the Red Sea, the reception of the law, they, they are now sustained in the wilderness where God gives them manna and water and meat They're on their way to the promised land. And it was that the Feast of Tabernacles was a chance to celebrate God's faithfulness and provision. But there's also a sense where this Feast of Tabernacles is something that's going to be celebrated in the future. In Zechariah, it is prophecy that all the nations would come to Jerusalem and and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. They were looking forward to that occasion. And so... They thought that this was the kingdom right now, and this needs to take place right away. Let's go ahead and start the party right now. And then Peter says something that is roughly true, but he wants to make a tent for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. 
Now, there's a problem here. They are not the same. And that's where we see the Lord speak. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, this cloud was an unusual cloud. The cloud makes an appearance in, in Exodus 13, 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in the pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. So the cloud, remember how no one can see the glory of God, no one can see the face of God and live? For God to be present with his people, he wrapped himself in vapor. They couldn't actually see him. You had to go into the cloud to be in the presence of, of God. The cloud was emblematic of the presence of Yahweh. Years ago, we bought one of those felt boards so my wife could teach Bible stories to third, three-year-olds. That's a lot of work, by the way, cutting up all those felt things. Well, she was going to teach about the Exodus, and she was looking for the cloud, and we realized that one of our kids had swiped it. We caught him, and we asked him, why did he take the cloud? And he explained, well, I can't see God, but I know he exists because he was in the cloud. I thought, that's pretty, pretty deep for a nine-month-old. <laughs> so. But that's, that's the association, right? In the cloud is Yahweh father so they're on this mountain and this supernatural cloud is approaching them and next thing you know they are in the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my son my chosen one listen to him there's three declarations this is my son not my adopted son this is my son my chosen one if you have any doubts about him being the messiah it's clear now that he is my chosen son and then in saying listen to him this is wording from deuteronomy 18:15 that says the lord your god this is moses speaking the lord your god will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is to him you shall listen. Listen to him. He is the Son of God, the Chosen One, the Living Prophet. God commends him. This, this is it. This is him. Now what's interesting about this assessment that God says is, is there's a contrast between God's assessment of, of Jesus and the ruler's assessment of Jesus. Remember, he just said, God said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. When Jesus is crucified on the cross, in Luke 23, 35, as the people stood by watching, the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Isn't that interesting? And so as these, these men are being persecuted, do you listen to the rulers and their assessment of, of Jesus? Or do you listen to the voices assessment of Jesus? Do you see it? And when they had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything about what they had seen. 
right? They have this glorious vision of future Jesus that's confirmed by, by living embodiments of Old Testament prophecy and confirmed by the voice of God. They come back down from the mountain and they could just say, hey guys, you would not believe what we saw. I mean, this is the real deal. He's legit. But there was a plan in place that they had to abide by. He must suffer, die before he can come back in glory. And in six months, their whole lives are going to change. Even though they saw this vision of glory, Jesus would be arrested. And remember what Peter did? He tried to save his life. Not realizing that, that, that this future Jesus is more than capable of saving his life, but he was intentionally laying it down. Peter would betray Jesus three times. The sheep would scatter when the shepherd was crucified. But then he rose from the dead and they all recoalesced. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit and they were driven to serve him and to basically bet big on him from that point on. And what was really interesting about Peter is what was the guiding thought that really drove him? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter shares his reflections on the transfiguration. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, and we, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Right? This is a reference to the transfiguration. This is a time where, where Peter, James, and John saw the future glory of future Jesus. That has never been seen since here on earth. They saw the resurrected Jesus. But remember how Mary thought he was a gardener? Clearly, he didn't look like this. They all saw Jesus on the shore, and then they made the connection. When Jesus was resurrected, he wasn't resurrected to future Jesus just yet. But now that he's taken to heaven, this is what he looks like now. And so as, as, as these men are, are ministering, and keep in mind, James, he was the first martyr. John would be exiled on Patmos, where he would suffer much at the hands of his persecutors. Peter would be crucified upside down. And it is a vision of future Jesus that sustains them. They were prepped for this. They were given a gift. Now, some of you think it would be really nice to have that kind of vision of Jesus, wouldn't it? You look at Ezekiel, where he was given the gift of seeing the glory of the Lord and all those wheels and angels. Or Isaiah, who the year King Uzziah died, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And you think, wouldn't it have been great to see that with my own eyes? To see the transfigured Jesus on the mount. Now what's interesting about all those cases is, is those men would then minister to extremely hostile audiences who would reject him. 
And if they didn't know better, they would be afraid of them. But because they had this vision of Jesus, they knew in the end, we will win. So you think it would be great if we had a vision of Jesus, if we, if we saw that. And, and all of this doesn't really even apply to us because we don't have this vision. But this is where Peter puts all of this in perspective. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting is if you keep on reading, Peter actually describes Paul's writings as scripture. What Peter is saying is you may not have this vision of Jesus, but you do have people telling you about it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, believe the testimony of John and of James and of Peter, and it is enough to know that they saw it. For instance, do you have to see someone remove your tumor, a surgeon remove your tumor to believe that it actually happened? You wake up and they tell you, we got it. Sometimes I might offer to show it to you in a jar and you're like, no, that's okay. You can sell it on eBay, I'm fine, I don't want it. But is isn't enough just to know that it happened. You see, you could see future Jesus by reading the scriptures through the eyes of faith. And Peter says, that's actually better. That's actually better. And all of this is meant to to energize us and to give us hope as we go forward. Now, one of our family's favorite books and favorite stories is Pilgrim's Progress. I recommend it to all parents to read to your kids over and over and over again. And if you know the story of of Pilgrim's Progress, it's about this man named Christian who learns that he lives in the city of destruction and the city of destruction is going to be destroyed. And so he has this huge burden and weight and he reads about it in this book and he decides to find this king from a faraway city and so he travels. He goes through the slew of despond. He manages to, to finally free up his burden, uh, convert, and then climb the great hill of difficulty. He, he does battle with the prince of demons. He goes through the valley of the shadow of death. He is incarcerated in Doubting Castle, where he has to fight for his soul. They, they go through the lost city of Vanity Fair, where one of his friends is, is martyred. And, and they basically go on this long, arduous journey, And before they make it to the end, they go to what's called the Delectable Mountains. And while at the Delectable Mountains, they are fed, they are able to rest, the shepherds care for them, and they go to this bluff, and when they're on this bluff, they're given a telescope, and they look through the telescope, and they see the glory of the celestial city. And that energizes them. It reminds them that we're almost there. Right, and, and John Bunyan wrote this while he was in prison. Did you know that? He was a Baptist pastor, and he suffered much from the official state religion, 
wouldn't conform to their ways. He was sent to prison. And what was worse was he had four children. His wife died, leaving him with four children. One of them was blind. He was sent to prison for 12 years, and the stress of it was so great that his new wife miscarried the first child because of the stress of it. While in prison, he, he would preach to others. He wrote this book. But that glimpse of the celestial city and about that end destination was a gift to him and a gift to others as well. Now, that is why it's so good to think about the future, isn't it? And not the immediate future. A lot of times we always specialize and things go from bad to worse. And, you know, you can look at all the problems in America and problems with this country and, and just get down. And frankly, if we were to just look at this planet, yeah, there are a lot of things wrong. But what's new, right? It's told about it in the scriptures. But Jesus gave the apostles a gift in a vision of himself. If you're struggling with cancer and you know that death is imminent, right? A vision of the future reminds you that there's something better on the other side. Right? The glimpse of glory. If you're in a very difficult relationship or perhaps, you know, one of your children is making choices that you really regret and you think they'll regret, you remember that there is a better glory on the other side. If you're weary from ministry, the toil of living, a life of sacrifice, you see that vision of the future, remember the glory that's on the other side. It brings wind to your sails. If you're about to realize that if I do this, I'm going to pay a high social cost. I will suffer much. I will strain this relationship if I obey the Lord in this area. You remember that there is a greater glory on the other side. You see, to motivate people to bet big on the future, when Jesus asked them, right, to pick up your cross daily and follow me, when he asked them to deny themselves, right, he gives them a gift and allows some of them to see the future and to see future Jesus, and then eventually to tell others about it so that we know that in the end, it's all going to be worth it, right? So if you want to bet big on future Jesus, and if you want to be encouraged to bet big on future Jesus, you need to recall him. Remember what the scriptures teach about him. Remember that God confirmed him so that at the end of our days when we see Jesus in glory and we bet big, right, we're going to realize that that was a right choice because we will celebrate our jackpot, which is eternity with him in heaven forever. Let's pray. Father, we come before you comforted by this vision of Jesus and this reminder that it will be worth it in the end. I pray for anyone right now who has just been discouraged by life, beaten up, Sometimes we can be so um, pulled down by the things of the earth that we forget to look at things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And when we think about where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, we think about what he looks like, how he is filled with glory. He will shroud his glory no more. We will enjoy an undiminished view of him someday in eternity.
I thank you for the mission that he had here, how he, he rescued us from the domain of darkness, from the reality of sin and, and Satan, how he died the atoning death on the cross in our place and rose again so that we might have new life in him. And Lord, as we think about the glorious Christ, I pray that all of us will have an inner longing to one day behold him face to face. And we thank you for the work that he did so that we might be able to do so. In Christ's name, amen.